Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. Wanted to go over some research I did for today's whiteboard video. Did it, did it today. Actually come out tomorrow because it's a little longer. But I think this is some research that not too many people have discussed. In fact, I've never heard anyone talk about it. And it's some dots that I think are very important to connect. And like I said in the whiteboard video today, it really pushes back against some sacred cows. What I'm referring to more, most specifically is the what I think is a myth that all we need is sound money, whether that's a gold standard or a Bitcoin standard, and it pretty much solves all of our problems. At least it solves the problem of consumer price inflation. But as long as we had sound money, you know, it's kind of like a panacea that we would have, we would immediately have this uh, deflation that would, uh, this productive deflation that would definitely accrue benefits to society at large, most specifically the poor and middle class. My, the, the thrust of the idea, and I talked about this briefly yesterday, or I talked about it, but not to the extent that I'm going to talk about it right now. Uh, the, my, my main argument is it is true that M2 money supply, the increase does matter to a certain degree, but it's not the most important thing. And if we get too hyper-focused on just sound money, sound money, sound money fixes everything, sound money, if we could just go back to sound money, I think we're, we're missing uh, what is truly at the root of the problem. And if we're missing that, then I think it diverts our attention away from what we should really be focusing on to increase freedom, liberty, and free market capitalism and produce an environment where productive deflation is most likely to occur. So let's go over this. And we're going to start with uh, a chart that I believe I went over yesterday, but I'm going to go over it quickly here just to kind of connect all the dots for people who might not have seen that video. And we're going to start with, uh, again, the premise that sound money fixes everything. And if we could just eliminate money supply growth, that we would also completely eliminate the rate of inflation, and then we'd receive all these other benefits. And this assumes that there is a fixed relationship between additional currency units and additional units of consumer price inflation. Not necessarily that they're one-to-one, -one, but as an example, if we have five additional currency units, then we will expect to see one additional unit of price inflation. So then if we have 10 additional units of currency, then we would expect to see two additional units of inflation or whatever the relationship is between the two. The sound money people believe that this is not, not exactly fixed, but there's definitely a strong correlation between the two. So let's start with that. Right here in between 1988 and 2019, and I could go to today's date, but this illustrates the point a little bit better because it's more of a direct, um, it, it's using numbers that are more consistent with what we saw in the late 1800s. So we've got a 400% money supply growth. And most people would look at this and they'd look at the 100% inflation. 
And they'd say, my gosh, holy cow, we need sound money because this just goes to show you that uh, when the government comes in and quote unquote uh, prints money, that they create all this monetary inflation and therefore it results in consumer price inflation. Then let's go back to, like I said, the end of the 1800s and same time span, roughly about 30 years here. Uh, 32 years to be specific, and we see that the M2 money supply growth increased by 400%, but instead of having 100% inflation, we had 45% deflation. So now the rebuttal could be, well, George, if we would have had a fixed money supply, the deflation would have been a lot lower. Right. Maybe, maybe not. Because this, again, would assume that there's a fixed relationship between the two. And if one 30-year span can that, that increases money supply by 400% can produce 100% inflation and another 30-year span that where money supply increases by 400% can produce 45% deflation, then there has to be another variable. You see, what we've proven by showing these two timeframes is that there is not a fixed relationship. And so you have to ask the question, well, what is it then? Why on earth can one 30-year period where the money supply grows the exact same rate, can, how on earth can one produce 45% deflation and the other produce 100% inflation? Well, if you continue to go through this, what you're going to find are, are more just extremely interesting facts. So... For a moment, and now just keep in mind, this blue line is nominal GDP. So let's go ahead and go through what real GDP would be during this time frame. So I, I've, I've got these numbers memorized. So if you figure out real GDP growth, which is nominal GDP adjusted for inflation, and you had 45% deflation, this would take real GDP growth to roughly 300%, okay? So real GDP growth, 300%. Then uh, M2, 400%. So just a, a, a bit of an increase above real GDP. Okay, now let's go back to our original time frame, And we see that we've got 300% nominal GDP. But when you reduce this for the rate of inflation, which let's say is 120%, what you get now is about 93% real GDP growth. So this is the secret right here. And I could go through, I mean, I could go through five or six different time series from eight, uh, uh, from 1880s, uh, excuse me, 1867 all the way to 2022. And you see this relationship over and over and over and over and over and over and over again where the rate of inflation is directly correlated to the, not, not the increase of M2 all by itself, but the increase in M2 relative to real GDP. This is the secret. So then the question becomes, okay, George, well, wh what, what are the factors that contribute to uh, real GDP. Okay, well, let's go into that. If we look at this chart, 
this is total government spending and revenue as a percentage of GDP. So what we see here, and this is we're focusing on the government spending, is from this period of 1870 to 1900, the percentage of government spending in terms of GDP was pretty much flat and it was under 10%. Okay. And keep in mind what was real GDP growth, 300%, right? And then we go over to this, the last time frame, and it goes from, let's see, about 1990, call it. So we were just under 40. And now if this went through to today, we'd be at maybe 45, 50. So we have an increase in government spending. And then uh, not obviously from that time sequence, but then we have a massive increase when you consider <laughs> what it did from 1870 all the way up to 2020 or 2019 or 2022. And so we see 94% or 93% real GDP growth, but it gets even more fascinating. So when you look at the time frame between 1930 and call it 1960, you see that real GDP growth was 200%, which would make sense because now we've got increased government spending. But pay very close attention to the rate of decrease or the inverse relationship between the rate of increase in government spending as part of the overall economy and the lack of real GDP. So here, um, when we move from, let's say, 1960 to 1991 or so, we see that real GDP was about 136%. And then we move to 91 to, to uh, let's just call it uh, 2020 roughly, and it goes down to 94, okay? But then when we go back to 1930 to 1960, it was 200. See, but that was a decrease of 100%. See, so it was an increase of 100%, excuse me, increase of 100% in government spending as a percent of GDP, but the real GDP went from 300% down to 200%, a decrease of 100%, right, which was the largest decrease we saw throughout this entire chart. So you know, what I'm trying to say here. And keep in mind, I did this in a whiteboard video, so it's much more clear. But it's not just the rate of increase with government or the uh, increase in government spending; it's the rate at which it increases. So, as an example, just a, a hypothetical here: if we would have seen the uh, from 1930, which we start at let's say 15 percent, and we end at 1960 around 30 percent, if that would have increased at a faster rate it's very likely that we would have seen GDP, real GDP, go down even further than it did. And keep in mind, it went from 300 down to 200, see? Now, you might argue, well, George, this is kind of, uh, you know, you're, you're, it's kind of a chicken and egg type thing where you're, uh, you're kind of focusing on government spending, but isn't it true that if we, increase the money supply, if the government and the Fed can go ahead and print money, that we would naturally see an increase in government spending. So in other words, isn't there a relationship between M2 and the percentage 
of government spending that we see in the economy? No, absolutely not. And another an example of that I'd give you is this time frame between 1930 and 1960, where we see the M2 money supply. In fact, I'll pull up this other chart. This will give you a better visual. So right about here, about 1930 to 1961, we see the rate of increase with M2 as 400%. Keep in mind, that's the exact same that we had from 1867, roughly to 1900, right? But there, during that time frame, government spending was flat, didn't, basically 8% the whole time. Where during this time frame, from 30, 1930 to 1960, government spending doubled, went from 15% up to 30%. So you cannot say that if we increase M2 money supply growth, we will therefore increase the rate of government spending as a percentage of GDP. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. The main takeaway here is we when we're trying to think about how to tackle the problem of inflation, because there is no doubt that an economy that produces healthy deflation is far more desirable on, on, on just limitless levels. But when we're trying to figure out how to create an environment where the entrepreneur is able to flourish and we're maximizing on the animal spirits, for lack of a better term here, uh, we can't just focus on sound money. That in and of itself won't solve the problem. And this is the myth. Why? Because even if you have quote unquote sound money, you can still have the government spending grow significantly, right? Let me give you another example here to prove my point. During this time frame from 1930 to 1960, other than obviously the, the wartime, we were on a quasi gold standard. Didn't seem to matter much. And then you compare this with the time frame from 1990 to 2019 or 87 to 2019. And we saw a increase in government spending, but not at the same rate. And this is when we are on a complete fiat system, complete fiat. So as you go through the data, it becomes clear that there's a, a much greater relationship between 
income taxes. Income taxes and deficit spending. And then the pushback there as well, George, if the government is, is, is printing money, if the Fed is monetizing the, de- the debt, then this is allowing um, the government to grow. And therefore, you know, we're increasing the government spending as a percentage of GDP. This is increasing M2 to a significant degree. But there, what you have to look at is you, you have to assume that the government is somehow benefiting from the Fed monetizing the debt. And granted, especially during QE, I think there's a good argument for that. But I don't know that there's a great argument for that going back to, let's just say, 1968. So if, let me give you an example here. If we go from 1913 to 1968, you see that the Federal Reserve increased the government bonds on their balance sheet to about 70 trillion, or excuse me, about 50 trillion. So they went from basically zero in 1913 to roughly 50 billion with a B in 1968. So over the the 50 years or whatever it was, 55 years, they added about 50 billion worth of government debt. So you could say that, well, George, look, look, the Fed is monetizing the debt. They're creating, they're, they're printing money, right? This is, these are currency units that might not be in the real economy chasing goods and services. Okay, fine. Well, let's look at that as a percentage of overall M2. And you see that, it, that M2 at this time was 550 billion. So even if you were to assume that every single dollar somehow got into the real economy from this Fed monetizing the debt, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But that still isn't even a 10% increase in the overall uh, money supply. And obviously, that fraction would be even less for the overall government debt, right? So then you sit there and say, okay, well, if the Fed wouldn't have bought the debt, then interest rates would have been a lot higher. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. If we look at today's date, or if we look at today, you sit there and look at the the one-month T-bill, and it's 60 basis points under reverse repo. So I don't think there's a a very good argument that there'd be no demand right now if the government issued a lot more debt. Now, maybe in the long run, and maybe at the long end of the curve, but definitely not the front end of the curve. You see, so there's a lot of nuance. So my point is that if you were on a, a fixed money, if you're on a sound money system, it is true that that might, might limit government spending, but it might not. It, 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 what it really depends on when you get down to the brass tacks here is the opinion of the voters. You see, and this is where I think a lot of my, my friends in the, you know, the sound money camp, they, I think a lot of them are engineers at heart. So they, they, they like Certain, well, not certainties. They like to have predictability and they like ones and zeros, right? And what they do is they try to 
engineer specific outcomes. So if we want deflation, we've got to figure out a way to engineer this. But where I differ, and I'm not saying I'm right or wrong, but where I differ is I say, okay, that's great. But unfortunately, we're not living in a world of ones and zeros. We're, we're, we're not living in a world that's created or we're not living in a world that's engineered. What we're, what we're doing is we're living in a world of human beings that are wildly emotional, that make irrational decisions constantly, for heaven's sakes, and are very imperfect. So if we really want to move the needle here, I think we should much more focus on changing people's opinion so they realize how detrimental increasing taxes and increasing deficit spending actually is. Because you can sit there and try to engineer that all day long. But in my opinion, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really just kind of futile. Um, I think it's a neat thought experiment. And I definitely think it's uh, you know worth pursuing, but not at the expense of taking mental bandwidth and focus away from trying to convince the voter and the average Joe and Jane that regardless of what type of money we have, that we need smaller government. We need less government spending as a percentage of GDP. We need less deficit spending. And we need um, and we need less government interference and less taxes. That's where I was going with that. Less income taxes. And if we're able to convince people, then I think we, we really move the needle. If you just, especially if you combine that with sound money, absolutely. I mean, I'm a, a huge advocate of sound money. But what I'm not an advocate of is looking at sound money as a panacea. Because this assumes that we can engineer the results we want or the desirable results in the real world. And we can't. We can't. Now, that can help us, but that in and of itself won't solve the problem. Because you can't engineer human beings. <laughs> it just won't work no matter how bad you want to. So that's the main takeaway here. And I know this kind of got all over the place and it's very difficult to explain, but just uh, bear with me and check out the whiteboard video tomorrow uh, evening. And when you combine that with this video, I can guarantee you it's gonna be just absolutely crystal clear. And then you can not only advocate for sound money, but you can also understand that maybe an even bigger variable is the fact that government spending as a percentage of GDP is just way too high. And we've got to get that down and focusing on sound money alone might not do the job. So we've got to allocate mental bandwidth to changing the views of human beings because at the end of the day, that's, What's going to move the needle? We're not going to be able to engineer the desired results from imperfect human beings in an imperfect world. All right, guys, enjoy your evening. 
and happy holidays to everyone. I know I get really nerdy on this stuff, and I know you guys do too. That's why I like to uh, share kind of the light bulb moments that I have when I do this type of research. Um, But at the end of the day, it's Christmas. It's all about hanging out with friends and family, even your friend and family member Fred's. (laughs) And if you need any more enticement, watch tomorrow night's whiteboard video. It features none other than Moody the Millennial. Oh, that is right. So guys, as always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market, capitalism. And we'll see you on the next video.